down women with diluted dreams of hope for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. Do you ever wake up after having a crazy dream and wonder why in the world your subconscious mind conjured up such a fantastic storyline? Dreamland is a very peculiar place in which we have absolutely no control of the situation. I mean, where else can you walk a high wire with a random stranger or frost a cake with your doctor and it all seems perfectly normal? Much debate has taken place in regards to whether dreams are scientific in nature or if they are more psychologically prompted. According to Piedmont Healthcare, the work of Harvard University psychiatrists suggests that we dream when there is stimulation in the brain that brings thoughts to our awareness. This theory is referred to as the activation synthesis hypothesis and suggests that dreams are caused by brainstem activation during rapid eye movement or REM sleep and stimulation of the limbic or emotional motor system. If you wonder why some of your dreams are so bizarre or strange, their research suggests that because the prefrontal cortex or the area in the brain that is associated with higher level reasoning isn't activated while we are dreaming. So our mind doesn't realize that some of the activities that are taking place aren't really possible. For example, walking through a wall. A theory that differs from scientific reasoning for dreaming is the psychological argument or what's more commonly known as the Freudian explanation of dreams. And most of the everyday or lay people endorse this prevalent notion. In this ideology, it is believed that dreams are a manifestation of our deepest anxieties and desires, often relating to repressed childhood obsessions or memories. Regardless of which philosophy you adhere to, when your dream becomes nightmarish in nature, it has a very real effect on your body. People often report waking from a nightmare with their hearts racing, drenched in sweat, flailing their arms, screaming, and even crying. Some experts believe that nightmares are caused by stress and anxiety in our waking lives, or they are due to a major change such as a move, a new job, or the death of a loved one. A scientific approach to the causes of nightmares attributes them to being chemically induced by drugs, illegal or prescribed, alcohol, or improper sleep schedules. Have you ever been overwhelmed by a nightmare 
that seems never-ending. And then your subconscious thinks you've awakened, but you're actually still in that same terrible dream. Imagine living in your awakened and conscious life with the same intense angst, dread, and worry of your worst nightmare. In researching the life of Alifair Schofer, I can honestly say that I would rather endure a week's worth of intense and horrifying dreams than to have lived a single day of her life. In our last episode, we met her family and learned of the heartbreak and sorrow she experienced all before her teenage years. But today, we'll further explore the life of a girl whose existence was nearly too extraordinary and too implausible to be believed. Based on findings from public records and narratives from surviving family members, we've learned that Alifair was about eight years old when her dad died and not quite a teenager when her mom passed away. When she was around the age of 12, Alifair and her younger sister, Billy, were appointed wards of the state of Kentucky and sent to an orphanage. Billy was soon adopted by a family, but Alifair wasn't so lucky. In Kiger's Rise and Demise of the American Orphanage, the author equates the danger of orphanages to that of prisons. He cites a study that states older, bigger, tougher kids preyed mercilessly on younger, smaller inmates. And as hard as it was to leave kids at the mercy of some adults, it was much worse to leave them at the mercy of 100 kids. Living in an orphanage meant either being a predator or a victim. Orphanages were never intended to be cradle to college environments. Instead, they were intended more as a refuge where a child could receive care, supervision, and discipline, and then be placed into the outside world. In 1940s America, Children who were past infancy and their toddler years were commonly viewed as less desirable prospects for parents who were seeking to adopt. So these less fortunate souls were sent to households or farms as part of the labor force and made to perform household chores or farm work in exchange for their food and shelter. Unfortunately, Alifair fell into this category and moved in and out of a number of foster homes that were known for taking in children to be used as manual labor. Time passed and Alifair's older sisters had each gone on with their lives. Sarah was now married and with children of her own, whereas Marie's life was spent moving from state to state, despite the fact that she too had children by that time. Both of these women were living near each other in Kentucky when they received word that younger sister Alifair had returned to the boarding house having run away from her most recent foster home. The Child Welfare Board 
had either lost track of her whereabouts or no one had reported her missing because they didn't pursue regaining custody of the still minor-aged child. Within days of her arrival back at the boarding house, Alifair began earning her keep. A story was handed down through family annals that a man over 40 years her senior had taken quite a liking to Alifair and was seeking only her company each time he visited the establishment. As the account goes, Sarah learned of a situation and confronted the man just as he was leaving the premises. A fierce quarrel ensued over the fact that Alifair was just a child, and in the heat of the argument, the man pulled out a pistol, held it to his own head, and said, If I can't have her, I'm going to end it all right now. Sarah responded by saying, Go ahead, pull the trigger. To which the man replied, Well, I guess I'll give myself one more chance. The saga ended with the man never being seen again. Over the next couple of years, details are vague or non-existent about the life of Alifair Chauffeur. Some records show that she wandered around town, going from the boarding house to the local jailhouse, where those in authority were said to have taken pity on her and allowed her to stay in a vacant cell instead of having to sleep outside. And some townsfolk who knew of her hardships in life provided her an occasional meal or offered her spending change. Surviving family members remember Alifair as being very childlike and immature, even while in her late teens. She was described as having poor impulse control and said to often argue with small children or cry when she didn't get her way. One account depicts an incident in which Alifair was visiting with her sister, Sarah. The house Sarah and her husband were renting was situated on a steep hillside and supported by several wooden pilings. As the story goes, Alifair was watching her young niece and they were playing in the shady area under the house. A can holding a flammable liquid was placed nearby and Alifair lit a rag and threw it into the can, causing it to burst into flames. Sarah's husband saw the blaze and ran to put out the fire before it could damage the entire structure. Furious and frightened, he took a switch and whooped his young daughter and Alifair, holding them both accountable for the fire. Alifair was quite angry with Sarah's husband and was said to have ran away in the night. All my life is a Paint a perfect picture for a few to show that I'm gonna leave here tonight. The dark and
and skies would get the best of me. Thunder, thunder, and singing the similarities I pray. There's a world far, far above. Most of her relatives assumed she had gone back to the boarding house and weren't too concerned. When it was later learned that she hadn't returned there, they figured she was in town and possibly sleeping at the jail. When a couple of weeks passed and Alifair hadn't returned to any of her familiar hangouts, her family speculated that she found someone and moved away. As the months passed, with still no news of her whereabouts, the two older sisters of Alifair's chauffeur packed their belongings and moved on with their families. Sarah's family moved to Mansfield, Ohio, and settled in an area known as Little Kentucky. They found temporary shelter in a one-room house owned by the sister of Sarah's husband, Henry Adkins. At this point, Sarah and Henry had six children, and Sarah was very pregnant with their seventh child. Meanwhile, Sister Marie had moved further north to Michigan and was living with her second husband and four of her remaining children, having already given away a set of twins. While their lives centered around hopes of their husbands finding long-term employment and permanent housing, Alifair's sisters had no idea of the ordeal their baby sister was entangled in. Alifair had indeed found someone, but he was nothing at all as her sisters had imagined, and he hadn't moved her away. He had, in fact, moved her below. All of the anguish, pain, and suffering that she had already endured in her young life was inconsequential to what she was about to face. We spoke earlier of nightmares, but Alifair's boogeyman wasn't just an evil character who invaded her dreams. He was a twice-convicted felon whose depravity and heinousness would haunt her waking hours for the rest of her life, and who would bring Alifair to the forefront of not only her sister's attention, but to that of the entire nation. Water down women with diluted dreams Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered-down women. Weekend in light While searching for love No pain in this world From above